The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. On May 15th, 2023, the World Health Organization released a new guideline on non-sugar sweeteners, which recommends against using them for body weight control or to reduce the risk of non-communicable diseases. The recommendation is based on the findings of a new systematic review of the available evidence, which suggests that using non-sugar sweeteners does not confer any long-term benefit for weight control, along with potentially undesirable effects from long-term use such as an increased risk of type 2 diabetes, increased risk of cardiovascular disease, and all-cause mortality in adults. In the United States, the consumption of artificial sweeteners is on the rise. Additionally, more and more products with non-sugar sweeteners are entering the marketplace. There have been more than 6,000 new artificially sweetened products launched in the U.S. alone since Y2K. Needless to say, this new recommendation has the potential to affect a lot of people and big industry. In this podcast, we'll take a deep dive into non-sugar sweeteners, including defining what they are, their history, their real effects on health, and whether or not people should follow the new WHO recommendations. All that and more on episode 227 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. This podcast is also brought to you by Viori. Viori makes super high quality, versatile clothing to wear both inside and outside of the gym for men and women. Again, my favorite are the core shorts and the rise tee. I've been super impressed with the core shorts and their longevity for now about four months that I've been training in them. No pilling, no tears. They're super stretchy. And honestly, they look great both inside and outside the gym. Same thing with the rise tee. Every time I wash it, it comes out of the laundry, perfect, ready to wear, whether I'm, again, I'm going to the gym or just wearing it casually. So check them out. Uh, they also have golf stuff. If you're a golfer and you're wondering, hey, uh, what sort of stuff could I wear on the course uh, that would double you know, in my day-to-day life? It's really really good stuff it looks clean and uh you know look good feel good play well that's uh that's my motto so go to viore uh all of their sources are sustainable and they offset their carbon footprint 100 percent. you can go to their website viore.com backslash barbell and get 20 percent off your first order All right, we're back on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. This is episode, I think, was this, 227? Last episode plus one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and plus one. We got the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Hey, I'm doing all right, man. What's up? Did you enjoy your vacation just from the podcast? Uh, did I get a vacation from the podcast? Oh, I guess you had a you had a guest. So. <laughs> I had Dr. Eubanks, I had Dr. McGuff. I mean, you just... You want me just to put you in like opposite of your hospital schedule? You just you can come on twice twice a month. You know that can be negotiated. The people the people missed you. I did this. Ask me anything, and people were like, "Where's Doctor Baraki? Is he okay?" And I'm like, "Well, cannot confirm or deny, but I think he's fine. He's <laughs> yeah. he's he's not posting on Instagram uh, very very often. He's you know he's been gone from the podcast for a few weeks. People were worried. I'm I'm here. I'm intact. He's, yeah, he, <laughs> he appears normocephalic within normal limits, otherwise moving all like extremities well. Are working. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any updates, any any new life updates you want to share with the class? Or 
Um, let's see. Uh, just usual working in the hospital, doing my other, doing my other things. Um, I, I guess the most recent one I told you about this yesterday is I'm increasing some of my, uh, educational responsibilities at the medical school for this up- upcoming academic year. They asked me if I'd be interested in, in taking over some of their, uh, certain classroom lectures, which I'm, uh, planning to do in the, in the cardiology section. And we'll see if that expands into other areas as well. So I'll be working in that. So does Big Pharma now directly pay you or are they paying you indirectly their money laundering this stuff like through the school? Like, how does that how does that work exactly? (laughs) Yes. My lecture on cardiomyopathies will be funded by the makers of heart failure medications. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Nice. Nice. I've got to get to them early. So (laughs) I have been wondering how to get this Big Pharma money. And it seems like you just go into academics and then you can that's how you procure big pharma money. Yeah. You go into academic medicine, you make half of what you could in private practice and then, but the other half is made profit. up for by pharma. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, that's uh, that makes sense. That makes sense. All right. So we're going to talk about this new world health organization or WHO uh, sort of recommendation. Now it's a conditional recommendation. We'll get into what that means here in a little bit, but I read it. It's 90 pages uh, just came out uh, May 15th. So last week and my DMS overfloweth. You know, what do you think about this and what? All right. So Here's, here's what I think about it. I'm going to tell you what, what the review document says, and then we'll kind of get into the practical implica- implications of it. So let's start off with this. What are artificial sweeteners? What are non-sugar sweeteners? So just some nomenclature stuff. Uh, so non-sugar sweeteners in this particular review refer to all synthetic and naturally occurring or modified non-nutritive sweeteners. So that basically means they are not sugar right? Just non-sugar sweetener, just from the definition and have no calories. So sugar alcohols don't count because that uh, that's sugar and low calorie sugars also don't qualify because they have calories. And I know that the, it's more common to say artificial sweeteners, but there are, uh, you know, naturally occurring non-sugar sweeteners like monk fruit extract or stevia. And in fact, there are eight non-sugar sweeteners that are currently approved for use in foods in the United States and Europe. Two of them are natural, so stevia and monk fruit extract, and six are synthetic. One is uh, ACE-K, so that's Sunet and Sweet One. That's like their would you call it a brand name versus generic? Yeah. <laughs> yeah sure. Okay. Uh, aspartame. Not, not the chemical name. Exactly. Yeah. Aspartame, which is equal or NutraSweet, uh, Neotame, Advantame, Saccharin, which is sweet and low, Sucralose, which is Splenda. And then, uh, yeah, so that's the eight. Uh, it was six as of 2011, but then monk fruit extract and another derivative uh, was, I think it's Advantame uh, was added. But in any case, they're not all the same. They each have unique chemical structures. They have varying levels of sweetness compared to table sugar, and they're processed differently. But despite all of that, that doesn't actually mean that they have different physiological effects in the body. There's limited data here, admittedly, on like what happens, you know, how they're processed and this, that, and the other. Uh, but as far as like actual effects on uh, variables like blood sugar, blood insulin levels, blood pressure, lipids, etc. We have some pretty good data there. We'll, we'll review that. Uh, and I would like to say just from the jump, there is a lot of safety data here, a lot of safety data. And so people were like, I can't believe they approve these things. The FDA is not doing their job. And it's like, have you read like any of this? I mean, there's literally hundreds of papers, uh, describing, you know, how these things interact uh, in humans, also animal models prior to that. I think it's, I think it's safe to assume that they have read zero of these, nor are they qualified or trained to understand any of these things and should probably not hold super strong opinions about it, (laughs) which is totally fine. Right. Like I don't expect, you know, people to have read these things. I'm just saying, if you have that opinion, I kind of want to know why. And then if the first thing, well, they can't be good for you because they're, you know, man-made. I'm like, well, there's a lot of man-made things that are like, you know, pretty good for us, just yeah. broadly speaking. Uh, but in any case, just because they're different chemically um, and have different levels of sweetness and maybe processed uh, slightly differently, that doesn't mean they actually have different effects on the body. Lots of lots of safety data here. Uh, for example, there's double-blind trials on aspartame. So people will say like, oh, when I, I'm sensitive to aspartame, when I have it, I get like a headache or something, or I get these, you know, I feel weird. And so they do double-blind studies 
where they give people either placebo or aspartame. And there's no difference in headache frequency, blood pressure, or blood histamine concentrations, which is a measure of uh, allergenic potential. So the potential to have like an allergic reaction between the people getting the placebo and people getting the aspartame. In another study that was similarly set up, the placebo group actually had more reaction than the the study group that was getting aspartame. And so this doesn't mean that people's experiences aren't real. I don't want to like say, you're making it up, but just that it might require some more investigation rather than just, you know, what somebody on social media says is, oh, it's probably artificial sweeteners. Or it, or it may be, you know, we see this with medications all the time, this kind of nocebo type effect, expectancy effect of like doing, taking something, putting something, ingesting something, and then expecting a negative response. That's one possibility. Or the other possibility is like, sometimes people get headaches. And if it temporarily follows that something that you did, then of course, we look for patterns. That's what our, our brains do. And we associate them. And then we can practically probably, you know, condition ourselves to expect it after ingesting something like that. This is classic nocebo type stuff. We see the same thing with statins and all sorts of other things when they're studying in this kind of more rigorous double-blinded fashion. I mean, that's something that Derek, uh, Dr. Derek Miles has brought up a number of times when talking about different data uh, with respect to you know injury risk and, and this, that, and the other. It's like, what is the base rate of these sort of findings in the population? Yep. And like, yep. so does this intervention or this protocol or this thing make a difference one way or the mm-hmm. other, more harmful, less harmful? And it's like, yep, people get headaches pretty commonly. And so... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And again, not to just to take away from anybody's experience, it's just like, can we reliably ascribe headache generation to these agents? And if so, should we make recommendations based on that data? And it doesn't appear that that's the case. So long story short, a lot of different types of non-sugar sweeteners. That's the term we'll use going forward. They're different chemically, different levels of sweetness, but doesn't mean they actually have different effects in the body. And as far as safety data goes, pretty good. So as far as the history of these things, they were developed like a long time ago, depending on the particular uh, sweetener that we're talking about. So saccharin, for example, which is sweet and low, was discovered in 1879. That doesn't mean that it's, you know, super great because there are a lot of things uh, based in antiquity that are not great. But yeah, it's been around since 1879. It's 300 to 500 times sweeter than table sugar. Uh, Aspartame, which is equal, uh, was first introduced in 1965. It's 200 times sweeter. We go down the list, but these things have been around for a while. Uh, Introduced to the market in the United States in 1950, but there's been a massive uh, increase in consumption of these things since uh, about the year 2000. So non-sugar sweetener consumption is estimated to have increased by about 200% in children and adolescents and about 54% in adults uh, when comparing uh, 1999 to year 2000 to the time period between 2009 and 2012. So that's gone up a lot, whether that's due to just a change in dietary patterns overall, or whether it's due to like increased products Again, 6,000 new products have been introduced with artificial sweeteners in the United States alone since uh, I believe it was 2000. I can't say, but probably both. So that's kind of like the history. And, and I think before we get into this review and talk about, uh, you know, the potential effects of foods with non-sugar sweeteners, it's good to have like a base, basic sort of understanding. People, what do adults actually eat in the United States? Because we're going to talk about dietary patterns a lot and like replacing certain foods with foods that may have uh, non-sugar sweeteners. And so understanding what you know adults actually eat on a day-to-day basis on average kind of gives us some context. So this is from the What We Eat in America 2015 to 2018 National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey data. Calorie-wise, the average calorie intake is just over 2,000 calories, it's 2,065 calories per day. It's a little bit higher in men, 2,400 and about 1,800 in women. Um, the average protein intake is 1.42 grams per kilogram body weight uh, in, the, in the population, which for men works out to about 95 grams of protein per day. In women, it's about 78 uh, grams of protein per day. Uh, carbohydrate-wise, the average intake is 245 grams of carbohydrates per day. It's 107 grams of sugar on average per day. And and that is, those are what are known as free sugars or added sugars. So not naturally occurring sugars like in fruit, for example, or other uh, sorts of carbohydrates, but like foods with just added sugars. So nearly half of the carbohydrate intake is sugar uh, and only 16.3 grams of fiber. Now, if you listen to our fiber podcast, you know that that's about half of what we would recommend. So just laying, laying the groundwork here. Uh, and then uh, about 83 grams of fat per day and about 12% uh, 
of the total daily energy intake comes from saturated fat, which is again, a little higher than we'd, we'd want to see. Not, not that much, but I think that was the uh, whole point of that paper. We reviewed this one. It was like, should Americans, should the policy be to reduce saturated fat intake? And there, the author's claim was like, well, on average, people are eating about 12% of their total daily calories from saturated fat. And so if we lower it to 10. Yeah, but maybe for the average person, you don't need to, but that doesn't mean that you don't need to recommend it ever. Collapsing the whole population into like one average human is not uh, the way to think about this. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> the most telling sort of uh, dietary pattern info that we have is that you know, nearly 40% of adults don't consume a single serving of vegetables in a day. Uh, less than half of adults reported eating one serving of fruit per day. So in the latest guidelines for dietary intake, that's the 2020 to 2025 dietary guidelines for Americans, they advise incorporating more fruits and vegetables into U.S. residents' diets as part of a healthy dietary pattern. Uh, and saying that adults should consume one and a half to two cup equivalents of fruit and two to three cup equivalents of vegetables per day. In 2019, only one in 10 adults was meeting either recommendation. And then if you combine both recommendations, oh, virtually nobody is, you know, you and I may be the only, <laughs> you, you and I and the, and the couple hundred thousand people that are listening to this, a good proportion of them probably are. Yeah. I mean, obviously like there's different, um, you know, a bit of a spectrum in terms of the population that we reach and, and the different uh, kind of areas that we run in and comment on, but it's just frustrating and that to, to hear things like, no, basically nobody's meeting these relatively modest kind of targets or like half, almost half the population doesn't eat a vegetable a day. And then juxtaposing that with other folks in the scene who are like, you need to precisely time your caffeine intake for like 120 minutes after you wake up. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I've been, I've been thinking about that and it's like, okay, yeah, it, there's probably a difference between like public health recommendations and public health promotion. Yeah, and then like, yeah. I don't want to call it optimization, so to speak, but it's like, yeah, people who geek out on that, which yeah. I which I get, but it's just frustrating how popular that aspect is compared to the much more impactful. Yeah, most people are not eating nearly enough fruits and vegetables. Some not e eating any. And so overall, the dietary pattern on average is is not good. Uh, and within that, we don't actually know the use of non sugar sweeteners. In, in that, we don't know like the the amount of foods that people are eating. We just know the general intake has gone up. Um, but in any case, these non-sugar sweeteners were developed as alternative to foods with added sugars. And so the idea was like, oh, if we can reduce added sugar intake, if you know the average person's eating over 100 grams of sugar per day, we can you know counsel folks to eat foods that have these non-sugar sweeteners in them. So they still get the sweetness, maybe that's what they want, and not consume all these added sugars, which we know, again, are highly correlated to untoward outcomes, whether it's increased body weight, increased body fat, this, that, and the other. But they have been widely used as an additive in prepackaged foods for a long time. They're common in diet foods, sure, but they're also common in ultra-processed foods. And so when we talk about consumption of non-sugar sweeteners, we need to like differentiate between non-sugar sweeteners that are added to a healthy dietary pattern. This is a person who's eating a bunch of fruits and vegetables, uh, you know, and a lot of whole grains, legumes or whatever, and maybe they put stevia or, or Splenda in their oatmeal, right? Compared to somebody who's eating a lot of non-sugar sweeteners uh, in prepackaged, ultra-processed, hyper-palatable foods that either co-occur with added sugars or have been, you know, rep they're replacing added sugars, but still this food's super tasty, energy-dense, and has other stuff that uh, that people may not want or otherwise leads to, like, overconsumption. We know it's gone up. We just don't know by how much. Uh, there's some hints as far as the use. So, like, non-sugar sweeteners, their use is increasing. Consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages, so like sodas, uh, for example, with sugar in them, that have, has been declining, but not by the same amount. It just It's like, yeah, people are still drinking fully leaded <laughs> Coca-Cola and uh, you know this, the teas and the – Austin, do you know – when's the last time you had a beverage that had like a good amount of added sugar? Like a regular, like a regular soda or a regular sweetened tea? I mean uh, – over a decade ago i don't know <laughs> just does not happen what uh i remember we were at our seminar in chicago and uh a good friend friend of the show dj brought me uh it was supposed to be a diet root beer which look it's it's the it's the king of diet diet sodas if you don't if you're sleeping on diet root beer like 
go out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this me- this podcast is not at all sponsored by any of the diet root beer manufacturers, but that that's my yeah. I like it because there's no caffeine in it, right? So if I just wanted something tasty to drink that you know is not going to get me spun up on caffeine, or if it's late in the day, I could have it. In any case, dude brings me a fully leaded root beer on accident. <laughs> but as I was as yeah. I opened it and I put it to my mouth, I I smelled the glucose. I smelled the sugar. I go, this smells different. <laughs> and then I looked at the label. I'm like, no, this thing, oh, I <laughs> 70 grams of sugar in there. And I'm like, okay, that would have been the first one. Yeah. And easily a decade. Uh, so yeah, yeah. It, non-sugar sweeteners are often consumed, not as a conscious replacement for free sugars, but together with foods and beverages containing added sugars. It doesn't look like people are actually replacing added sugars that often with non-sugar sweeteners. That was kind of the goal of their introduction. Uh, but rather these things are being used in just ultra processed foods in general alongside either added sugars or they're just added for taste, texture, preservation, things of that nature. So rather than consuming fewer calories by replacing added sugars, maybe people are just adding them to their, their regular diet. With all that in mind, let's get into this review. So this new World Health Organization review is published uh, May 15th and it's got 283 unique studies 50 randomized controlled trials, 97 prospective cohort studies. That's where they take a group of people, two groups of people, and they follow them uh, into the you know into the future and see what happens. And then 47 case control studies. Some of these were done in children. Some of these were done with adults. Some of these were done with mixed populations. The randomized controlled trial data is probably stuff I'm most interested in just because they're controlling intake a little bit more closely. Uh, the duration of these randomized controlled trials last from as short as seven days all the way up to over the three years. Uh, some of them used lean individuals only. Some of them used individuals with overweight or obesity only. And some of them used uh, mixed populations. Pretty much all the different types of non-sugar sweeteners were used in these studies. Uh, it was most commonly assessed through beverages. There's another category they call tabletop foods. Yeah, I've not heard that term before. I don't know. But in any case, mostly, most commonly uh, assessed through uh, non-sugar sweetened beverages. And some of them used dietary advice to replace added sugars. Some of them just added a supplement uh, that had non-sugar sweeteners to them. Uh, Some asked folks who were using non-sugar sweeteners to stop using them. And other times they got a pill either that had a non-sugar sweetener or placebos. A lot of that data is either safety data or just like, what are the physiological effects of taking these things in? So we got, we run the gamut here. And so what does this data actually show with respect to health? And I'll start out by saying none of this data uh, is applicable to individuals with diabetes or pre-diabetes. So effectively in this review, they excluded all data on individuals uh, who have some insulin resistance and therefore either pre-diabetes or, or uh, diabetes uh, if it's been sustained for a while. And, and that's important to note because in my view, the data on non-sugar sweeteners, particularly as replacements for foods with added sugars, is very strong in individuals with diabetes or pre-diabetes. And so if you eliminate all of that data, I think the result is rather predictable in that the effect is pretty much muted uh, in individuals yeah. who effectively don't have a problem tolerating sugars by definition. So, okay, let's talk about the effect on weight and the randomized controlled trials. Individuals who consumed more non-sugar sweeteners tended to have a lower body weight compared to those who are consuming either less or no non-sugar sweeteners. And it's not that much though. It's 0.71 kilograms, which is, you know, a pound and a half or so. They also had a lower BMI individuals who consumed non-sugar sweeteners, but this is not statistically significant. Observational data uh, showed that those with higher non-sugar sweetener consumption tended to actually have a slightly higher BMI, 0.14, and a 76% increase risk of obesity compared to a low intake. And I know I said 76%. They're like, oh, my, what? The, that's so big. And it's like, yeah, they had a small risk of obesity at baseline, and then it increased a small amount. But still, because it was a small number to begin with, you see that like pretty big pretty big uh, increase. The thing uh, about this observational data is we don't actually know the amount of non-sugar sweetener that people were actually consuming. And so it kind of takes me back to that saturated fat uh, sort of conundrum that we have in some of the research where it's like, look, if the difference between the high and the low intake is actually not that big, like what are we actually parsing out here? Mightn't it be better explained by just individual variability or overall dietary pattern or genetics or, you know, bad luck or or, or whatever? And and I'm thinking likely, but I, I just can't say for certain whether or not it's the difference 
get actual non-sugar sweetener intake. Yeah, there's so many different ways that these kind of uh, different research methodologies, these different types of studies, there's so many ways that they can be biased to either show no effect or a large effect. And and when I use the word bias, that does not imply anything insidious or, you know, malicious about the researchers necessarily, but it could be ways that either the, the uh, study was designed, the way that the data were gathered, or the way that they were analyzed. We've talked about this, as you said, a ton in the cardiovascular context, where, for example, when they compare dietary saturated fat intake, if there's not enough contrast in intake, high versus low, like you said, or it, especially in the studies that do that kind of analysis, and then they adjust everything for blood lipid levels. And it's like, well, you just erased the mechanism that that variable impacts the health outcome, right? And so that's just an, one example of how maybe the researchers didn't realize what they were doing by biasing the study to show no effect, um, uh, or maybe they did. You know, it's hard hard to know. So, so there's a lot of caveats that you have to build into your interpretation depending on the research design um, to, to get a sense of, is this telling me what I think it's telling me? <laughs> but that's really hard to do. And so, you know, when you see a huge relative risk increase and it's like, this study showed a 76% risk increase and like nobody like thinks about it particularly hard, <laughs> then it's like around the world twice before anybody is like, hold up guys, <laughs> slow down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, there's some de- so definitely some interesting sort of uh, caveats here with the data that we'll talk about as far as like, you know, how many of these randomized controlled trials actually had folks replace you know, foods with added sugars with foods with non-sugar sweeteners? And like, did they measure that? Or was it just added to the the regular dietary pattern? And so you would predict that if they're just adding non-sugar sweeteners to their dietary pattern and not changing anything else, you're like, well, I don't know that I would expect an effect unless we believe that non-sugar sweeteners have this unique health promoting effect, which we'll get to later. But overall, the, the story on weight is that in the short term, people tend to lose weight, reduce their BMI when they replace sugar with non-sugar sweeteners. Uh, This is predictable. People tend to eat less sugar, eat less calories, and they lose weight. That happens in the short term, pretty much up to about six months that we have randomized control trials on that. Longer term, when we're talking about, you know, year and a half, three-year data, whatever, that effect appears to disappear, go away. And as far as why that happens, my interpretation based on not only the systematic review, but actually reviewing the source data is that people's dietary patterns don't really change that much long-term, meaning that you can have folks replace foods with added sugars in them with foods with uh, non-sugar sweeteners, but then long-term, their energy intake kind of comes back to baseline. And so the weight loss that they had in the short term, they they have some weight regain. Although I will point out that individuals using non-sugar sweeteners have less weight regain than those who do not use non-sugar sweeteners. Yeah, that would be the question over the long term is if you're going to make the case that they have a, you know, a, a trend towards increasing BMI or obesity, is that attributable to this particular, you know, nutrient substitution above and beyond the general BMI and weight trajectory of the population overall? Like in general, people like we know that rates of obesity are increasing. And so it's like, well, is this subpopulation who tend to use these things? Are they drastically outstripping the rate of weight gain? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so again, that's like sort of that base rate, like, all right, what is their traditional weight trajectory of an individual traditional BMI trajectory? And it's like, all right, uh, are folks who consume non-sugar sweeteners doing better on average or worse on average? And uh, while this systematic review did not address that, my gestalt is that Yes, in fact, they do do better than individuals who consume a high amount of added sugars in their diet. But that's that's a whole other subset. Again, if, if we're just limiting the discussion to individuals who replaced foods with added sugars in their diet with foods with non-sugar sweeteners, I, I would predict them to do better. But if it's just added on top of their diet, regular dietary pattern, I wouldn't expect it to do much. Okay, so, so the TLDR on weight, eh, small effect unless, again, it lowers your energy intake lowers your sugar intake. Okay. Uh, With respect to type 2 diabetes, there are no effects of non-sugar sweeteners, no statistically significant and therefore no clinically significant effects of non-sugar sweeteners on fasting glucose, fasting insulin levels, or hemoglobin A1C. That's a measure of uh, blood sugar control over months uh, based on RCT data. So randomized controlled trial data, which is pretty well, well controlled. Observational data, on the other hand, shows that those who consume the most amount of non-sugar sweeteners tend to have a higher risk of type 2 diabetes 
if they were not previously diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. So a slight increase uh, based on consumption of non-sugar sweetened beverages and a slightly larger but still relatively small increase in diabetes, type 2 diabetes for uh, the consumption of tabletop foods with non-sugar sweeteners. Again, I'm uncertain what this actually means because there are a lot of ultra-processed foods that have non-sugar sweeteners added to them to make them even sweeter than they were before, but without, you know, blowing the calorie total out of, out of the, out of the park. And so you think if you're like a food scientist or food manufacturer and you're like, okay, we want to make this thing super tasty. How do we do it? Okay. We're going to add a little bit of sodium. Okay. We're going to add a little bit of fat. Okay. We're going to add a little bit of sugar, but we can't add too much sugar because honestly, if people look at the label and it says 700 calories, maybe, (laughs) maybe they're not going to eat that. But if it's only 500 calories and we make up for that with, by adding the, these non sugar sweeteners and make it just as sweet as it otherwise would be. Ooh. Maybe, maybe that's the ticket. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I, the risk, again, is in the data. But uh, as far as how you parse that out, it doesn't look like individuals who are, again, replacing foods with a lot of added sugars with foods with non-sugar sweeteners do worse. More so, it looks like people who just consume a lot of non-sugar sweeteners on top of their their regular diet, yeah, they might seem to do worse. And to me, that that prediction is in keeping with my how I view this, just yeah, ultra processed foods in general, probably not the move from a health promoting dietary pattern standpoint. Yeah, we're drawing several parallels with our conversations we've had before about blood lipids and, and cardiovascular disease. And this is kind of another one where in, in that realm, we repeatedly talk about this idea of like multiple converging lines of evidence where you have one study design, be it like a metabolic ward study or a randomized controlled trial or a prospective cohort study or a you know nutritional epidemiology observational kind of thing that when they're done you know reasonably well, they all kind of converge and point in a similar direction. And all of that bolsters our confidence in the ultimate conclusion. And here, what you're pointing out is not a concordance, but a divergence, meaning that you have randomized controlled trial data on these sweeteners that show no effect on fasting glucose, no effect on insulin, no effect on hemoglobin A1C. And then the observational data, which is looking at, you know, looking at just relationships between people who tend to consume more of these things and certain outcomes. Uh, and, and you see a little bit of an increased risk. And so that's where some confusion can arise. And you have to try to reconcile that um, depending on how the observational studies were designed. And this is probably one place where in particular I fall more inclined to the randomized control trials data where I'm not seeing a clear biologic, like if both of these things pointed in the same direction, we had randomized control trials that like, oh, when people consume these, their blood sugar goes up, their insulin goes up. And we have observational data showing that their risk is higher. I'm like, okay, well, that is quite suggestive. And we have apparently some mechanism by which it can happen, even if it remained to be identified. But in a randomized controlled trial, it's like, well, we're dealing with all the things that could, you know, confound this. And so, both things are pointing in the same direction. I feel more confident that this is badness. Here, they're pointing in opposite directions, and then you kind of have to try to reconcile it. And so, I'm feeling no. I mean, and 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 I just want you know, it's worth emphasizing just to caution people because how much, how often the non-nutritive sweetener, the non-sugar sweetener, the artificial sweetener conversation out there, you'll hear people make all sorts of confident things like, oh, you eat these, and then it tricks your body into you know raising your insulin because it thinks sweetness, and then your blood sugar goes down, and then you get hungry and diabetes. It's like, that's all nonsense. It is complete nonsense. <laughs> the pancreas has very specific sensors for glucose. It does not detect, you know, and, and release insulin in response to non-sugar sweeteners. Um, but it's a frustrating conversation to deal with because when people say it very confidently and they weave like a, a, a story that sounds good to people, they're like, oh, okay, yeah. I get it. <laughs> it's like, no, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, you do get, there's that, that people will talk about the cephalic phase of insulin response. Like, so if you taste sweet, if you think sweet, if you expect sweet. Yeah. You get a little squirt of insulin out of the pancreas, basically saying, Hey, something good's coming down the pipe. I could, I could feel it, but it is a small amount. And the biological effect of that. It, it is neither, it is neither diabetogenic. It's not caused diabetes, nor does it cause low blood sugar. No, no, it doesn't affect blood sugar. Uh, the theory here is that because it doesn't do anything to blood sugar and you expected blood sugar to need to be like tempered, well, that's going to drive appetite. There's a couple problems with that line of thinking. One, insulin itself is a a satiety or satiation promoting sort of hormone. And so foods that don't raise insulin, you get a lower uh, satiety response. Also, the levels of insulin, you know, change are so small that the effect on appetite and satiety are relatively 
zero when we talk about the cephalic phase. It's the same thing we see with GLP-1 changes due to dietary pattern changes. It's just not enough. Uh, you know, it's a, it's spitting in the ocean. It's just not enough to really mm-hmm. move the needle. And so, yeah, people will say these things and then again, you got to go to the data and you just read the stuff and then you're like, okay, well maybe that wasn't entirely true or maybe it was entirely false. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Moving on to heart disease. So randomized controlled trial data on non-sugar sweeteners show no effect on blood lipids. Uh, it actually shows a reduction in systolic blood pressure and uh, diastolic blood pressure. And so what you would expect then, if this, uh, if we're just ascribing long-term um, sort of uh, cardiovascular disease risk to non-sugar sweeteners, you'd say, look, man, no effect on blood lipids and a reduction in blood pressure. Whew, you would expect benefit, a reduction in heart disease risk, but that's not what the observational data shows long-term. Uh, it shows a slight increase in cardiovascular disease, stroke high blood pressure, and death from cardiovascular disease. And these are all relatively small. That's just relative to not consuming these things, although we don't really know that people weren't consuming these things at all just because the the data sets. And so what you see repeatedly throughout this paper is low certainty in these findings or very low certainty in these findings. Effectively, all of the uh, sort of results, uh, the different disease processes that uh, are being measured, uh, they're like, yeah, we have low certainty in these results or very low certainty. And you're like, well, me too, because <laughs> because yeah. the data is, is what it is, uh, unfortunately. So the way I kind of, again, interpret the risk on cardiovascular disease is similar to that of type 2 diabetes. It looks like the randomized controlled data is pretty good actually on these things, but the observational data is more complex, more difficult to interpret. And again, I'm not sure what to make of it because there are so many moving parts here. Again, I would say that individuals who reduce their total sugar intake and or reduce their energy intake by replacing foods with added sugars to foods with non-sugar sweeteners, probably good. But if you're just adding non-sugar sweeteners to your diet and not replacing anything, eh, particularly if those foods are ultra processed and you end up consuming too much of them, in which case I would say, yeah, that probably uh, produces untoward effects. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like that all else equal sort of thing, making that replacement beneficial. But then it's like, okay, well, if all else is equal, then I'm just doing a randomized control trial. <laughs> you know, the observational data, you know, in that context, all else is never equal. And that's probably where a lot of this stuff gets complicated and difficult to interpret. So this, I, I feel the same here. It's just like a divergence again that you have to try to reconcile. But Yep. Other big uh, sort of disease processes that were evaluated here, cancer, no difference in overall cancer incidence or mortality. Uh, there was, uh, I believe it was two studies that showed that saccharin, which is uh, that sweet and low, increased the risk of bladder cancer in some case control studies. But again, very low certainty evidence and the effect was not that large. And again, we don't really know, like, were the people who were consuming high amounts of saccharin, how much different they were than low amounts of saccharin. And there's a lot of other uh, uh, sort of risk factors for bladder cancer that I don't think were adequately controlled for. So that's why they have very low certainty (laughs) in these findings. So for me, shoulder shrug emoji, I do know that if you consume a dietary pattern that leads to weight gain, body fat gain, whatever, that is, you know, an additional risk factor for most types of cancer. Uh, But again, if you consumed a dietary pattern, again, replacing foods with free sugars, added sugars to foods that have non-sugar sweeteners, and that lowers your body weight, lowers your body fat, I think that's ultimately health promoting. So kind of in the same, same place. Uh, other things that reported here, yet there's a lower risk in children of getting cavities, uh, if they consume non, uh, sugar sweeteners compared to either sugar, um, or actually just not consuming them at all. There's another little signal around pregnancy, some potential risk of preterm birth, uh, maybe, and then maybe the children having asthma or allergies, if they consume, if mom consumes, um, non-sugar sweeteners, uh, during pregnancy, but again, that whole thing is complicated because, again, what foods were they actually eating? Probably the best data we have on here, and this is why I keep coming back to this. Uh, this is like my sort of central paradigm here, is that when you use randomized controlled trials up to six months in length, and you look at the average energy intake of those who are replacing foods that have added sugars in them with non-sugar sweeteners, they on average eat about 136 calories less. That's good. They eat about 40 grams less per day of sugar. That's also good. And so if you're replacing foods that have a lot of added sugar in them with non-sugar sweeteners, and that produces an energy deficit and reduces the total sugar intake, those are good. 
Whether or not those are sustained long-term, I think is a more complicated discussion, but you see that with every dietary intervention period. When you tell, you know, council folks, yeah, should eat more minimally processed foods, more fruits and vegetables, more legumes, more whole grains, more lean proteins, less saturated fat, this, that, and the other. In general, in the short term, people can do that. They're like, yeah, motivation, woo, go to the willpower well, and let's, <laughs> let's get it. But then at a year, the food environment wins. <laughs> the food environment wins. And, and, you know, that doesn't mean everybody sort of fails that intervention, but, you know, a, a, a large majority of folks will. And so, yeah, I think that is, again, very predictable. If you took a thousand people and you counseled them to replace foods with added sugars uh, for foods with non-sugar sweeteners, I would expect a small percentage of them to like do that, reduce their energy intake, reduce their sugar intake, and be able to maintain that long term. I'd also expect a small group of folks to not be able to do that and actually end up worse at a year's time. And then everything in between, it kind of averages out. So I think there's a potential mechanism for benefit here, but whether or not that's sustained is more complicated than just the, the food itself, if that makes sense. Okay. So problems with the data here. Most trials provided foods and beverages containing non-sugar sweeteners or free sugars on top of the rest of the diet. So not replacement. So I keep going back to this replacement data, replacement data. There are a few studies doing that, and those generally show promising results. But in studies where they are not actually replacing foods, the results are not that great. And that's kind of what you would predict. You're like, well, we didn't actually replace anything. We just added to the diet. And unless, again, you predict that non-sugar sweeteners, the saccharin, the sucralose, the you know stevia, monk fruit extract, have like unique health-promoting effects that we're just missing out on by not taking them. If, if you if you don't suspect that, then you're like, well, yeah, of course, just add into the diet. It's not going to do anything. And that's kind of what we see. Uh, right. The differences in actual intake of non-sugar sweeteners long term are not large in many cases. We don't know the exact amounts, but when you compare the number of foods that people consume after one year, after three years, the sort of differences uh, in intake narrow up. And if there's not a big enough difference to actually have a legitimately high intake group and a low intake group. I don't know that I can say confidently like what the differences are between individuals consuming a lot versus a little. Uh, again, the overall dietary pattern matters. So if somebody's consuming a lot of non-sugar sweeteners on top of a regular health-promoting dietary pattern, so rich in lean proteins, fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains, etc., that's different than a person consuming a lot of non-sugar sweeteners through ultra-processed foods. And similarly, the comparator matters. If uh, non-sugar sweeteners are replacing sugar, that's probably good. If sustained, what if you're comparing non-sugar sweeteners in beverages to water? Appears to be no difference, but you know, again, if you don't expect non-sugar sweeteners to have this unique health-promoting effect, that's exactly what you would <laughs> you would expect. Uh, and then again, just adding non-sugar sweeteners onto a poor dietary pattern overall doesn't seem to move the needle. There's also this reverse causation potential here. So those who are already at elevated risk of disease. Uh, may on their own accord initiate use of non-sugar sweeteners because they're promoted as dietary, you know, diet foods and health promoting, et cetera, because of their risk status. And so if they're already at higher risk or already are diagnosed with these things and they're consuming more of these foods, like which way does the causal arrow go? Uh, you know, you can't just write off all of the data to these things. So it doesn't mean that the data is bad. It's just that you have to interpret it very carefully. And so I could see somebody Sitting down, they're like, all right, I got two hours. I got 90 pages to read. Let's get to the bottom of this. And they read all of this and they're like, I don't really know how to put this into context. And I, I, I feel for you. Like, look, if you read it, um, I'm on your side. Great. Good job. <clears throat> but you, you would have also had to like be aware of these bigger implications on how do short-term changes in the dietary pattern affect long-term changes in the dietary pattern? On average, how many people are able to sustain dietary pattern change? What is a health-promoting dietary pattern? <laughs> you know, th things of this nature. And so without all that background knowledge, it's very difficult to just read a guideline and then be like, yep, I, 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 can, I can contextualize this. So that's why we've been trying to do that every step of the way here on this podcast. Yeah, it shouldn't be surprising that it is difficult to draw clear conclusions from data that are presented as very low certainty and are discordant depending on the study design. Like, how are you going to draw a ton from that? So then you have to kind of draw the best conclusion you can, even if it is relatively low confidence from the strongest kind of study design that is available to you. In some contexts, it may be a, a randomized controlled trial. In some contexts, it might be a prospective cohort trial. 
Um, if all you're, you have in front of you is like retrospective observational data, I would be <laughs> very cautious about drawing much off of that kind of thing, um, just depending on what, what kind of uh, phenomenon you are uh, examining or studying. But um, yeah, super challenging to, to distill into a clear and definitely a confident conclusion. Yeah, I don't, uh, I, I, my sympathies go out to the, you know, steering, the steering committee and the, and the group of researchers who put this together, because I'm like, man. I probably just wouldn't have. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I obviously they felt charged to do something to update their previous guideline, which was done about 15 years ago. Uh, I don't know why necessarily, because I, I, I mean, <clears throat> I think if the public health messaging is as follows, like, hey, non sugar sweeteners themselves are not particularly health promoting on their own. Uh, but if you replace added sugars with them, that's probably good but they may be present in other foods and that you probably shouldn't be eating. I would be on board with that 10 out of 10 out of 10. Mm -hmm. But I think the messaging is going to come across like this. Artificial sweeteners are bad. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, ah, so yeah. All right. Here's, here's my wrap up. Here's, here's what I think about this. I don't, I, I think we I can with some level of confidence say that non sugar sweeteners are not essential or uniquely health promoting, meaning that just adding them to the diet, I don't think is going to move the needle one way or the other. Uh, they also don't appear to be uniquely harmful either, because even with relatively high intakes, if the overall dietary pattern is good, we don't really see like this, these negative effects, like huge cancer risk, huge heart disease risk, diabetes risk or whatever. In fact, those seem to be more uh, accurately predicted by other measures. So like total energy intake, total sugar intake, things of that nature. And just to just to add one caveat, because we didn't mention this earlier, you were talking about the safety data on these things, like with aspartame, for example. And it's like when they've done those kind of safety trials, the dose finding for like toxicity compared to the doses that are typically used in dietary intake, there's like a vast gulf between amounts that are in habitual intake and the levels that are needed to demonstrate toxicity from these things, like far, far apart. It'd be very difficult to consume enough artificial sweeteners to get to any sort of toxic dose uh, if yeah. you're a human. Yeah. Uh, who are, who's conscious and like has an intact GI tract. Yeah. That said, I think non sugar sweeteners are best used for replacing foods that have added sugars in them, particularly sugar sweetened beverages. So full strength soda with diet soda, full, you know, sugar, uh, iced tea with, you know, non, no sugar, uh, diet, diet, uh, diet teas. Those, those would all be great uses for non sugar sweeteners as far as these tabletop foods, replacing foods with added sugar with ultra processed foods with non sugar sweeteners, I would just try to eliminate that entirely to the best of my ability. I just don't think that that's like a, a good trade-off, uh, so to speak, because uh, ultimately you're, it's like a bandaid and not a good bandaid, like a leaky, tiny, <laughs> poorly adhesive <laughs> bandaid. Uh, yeah. You would really just want to change the dietary pattern in more significant ways. Um, while short-term data uh, with in randomized controlled trials on non-sugar sweeteners show energy intake uh, reduction and sugar reduction, the overall dietary pattern needs to shift for a long-term benefit. So again, I think there's potential mechanism for benefit, but how to sustain that long-term, I think, is more about behavior change and getting the dietary pattern to change significantly that is sustainable. Uh, and as far as any risks, and again, with people, the take-home message or the headline is artificial sweeteners or non-sugar sweeteners are bad. I think the risk, if any, is actually there is most attributable to ultra processed foods that are also containing non-sugar sweeteners alongside either added sugars or things like added sodium, added uh, saturated fat, et cetera. Not from, again, putting Splenda in your oatmeal or in your coffee or drinking a diet soda. So if you want to add non-sugar sweeteners to a health promoting diet, using diet drinks, artificial sweeteners uh, added to minimally processed foods, et cetera, that's all fine. Um, but my if you just take one thing away from this paper, this this podcast and this recommendation, I think at a population level, diets should not be very sweet as far as sweet tasting. And that's kind of this umbrella like catch all thing. It's like, look, if your diet is really, really sweet, I know that you're either you're either eating a lot of foods with added sugars to them or a lot of processed foods. It's just really difficult to yeah. make minimally processed or unprocessed foods very, very sweet. And so when we kind of think about one of the pillars of a health promoting dietary pattern, it just wouldn't contain a lot of processed foods and therefore would not be very sweet. And so I'm not concerned about adding a packet 
of Splenda to your oatmeal, I'm more concerned about, well, did you get the ultra processed oatmeal that's got like, you know, chocolate chip flavoring in there or whatever, in which case I think we, we can make better exactly. choices. So are you going to, you going to stop eating non-sugar sweeteners, Austin? Uh, no, I, I was thinking about um, probably what my most frequent, uh, you know, consumption source is. And it's honestly probably whey. Um, a lot of whey protein tends to have like sucralose or something like that yeah. in it. Um, I don't, I don't do, I, I probably do more sparkling waters and stuff than diet sodas these days, although I'm doing occasional diet soda here and there. Um, I don't put anything in my coffee or oatmeal or anything else. So it's probably, it's probably whey, which I'm going to keep using. using as I have for many years. Yeah. I, uh, when we first came out with whey RX, we had stivia, it was stivia, uh, sweetened or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, due to the cost and the manufacturing process, we could, it was pretty difficult to get a protein that I thought was, I felt comfortable selling. So we, we switched over to, uh, uh, ACE K and it, it's a better product, but people, particularly those who were like, no way I'm taking that. I can only use stevia. I'm like, I don't, I, yeah, I don't know like how I can convince you that, that these both things are fine. And so if you want to find another product that's got stevia, that's stevia sweetened, that's fine too. But to me, it's six and one half dozen in the other. It's like, whatever they're the same yeah uh yeah. and the ace k stuff stays together a little bit better is also significantly cheaper so i don't have to raise prices uh on you guys uh mm-hmm. and i think it tastes better so uh have you ever had unflavored way uh i don't think i have well so yeah i it, i've used it to cook with a few times like that's in some rest some of the like fitzbo recipes mm-hmm. uh which whatever that's mm-hmm. fine uh, unflavored way is not something that people are going to be drinking regularly that that often but unsweetened way dear god I, maybe maybe the most vile stuff that I've ever willingly <laughs> like consumed, and it's one of those things. It's like you buy like a ton of this. Imagine buying like a five pound bag, and you're like, right, right, right. yeah, there's your first mistake. <laughs> so so what I t- I turned to do it. I I I would make the shake, and then I would just put artificial sweetener in <laughs> just to, <laughs> to make it tolerable. Yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah. So hopefully you guys like this podcast. This is episode, uh, 227, the barbell medicine podcast. I really appreciate you listening. Uh, make sure to check out our sponsors. Also, if you're interested in attending one of our live events, uh, check that out. It's all linked in the description below, but before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance and health and fitness from everyone here at barbell medicine. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the barbell medicine podcast. Mm-hmm.